Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, Robert, do you believe in ghosts? I believe in ghost stories. I've I've never had a supernatural experience. I have not seen a ghost. I've I've spoken to many people who who claim to have seen them or they've seen something they can't fully explain and and turn to the ghost narrative. But uh yeah, for my own part, I don't believe in ghosts, but I believe in the power of ghost stories. Yeah, that's a, I I think that's a good position to take on this. I don't know that I necessarily believe in ghosts. I don't not believe in ghosts, if that makes sense. But uh, I'm open to the idea. And I do know two people, though, who are sort of into the whole amateur ghost hunting thing and will like occasionally go to like abandoned houses in the middle of nowhere with what do you call them, like EMF meters and stuff like uh-huh. that and uh, try to do like spirit photography. But uh, it's never really struck me as something that, that was particularly interesting. One time I was with this guy who this is one of the people who's into this and we were driving by the cemetery where like half of my family is buried. And mm-hmm. he was telling me about how he had been like in, hanging out in that cemetery doing ghost hunting in the middle of the night. It just strikes me as a, a bit too Radio Shack for my own. You know? <laughs> right. Like hanging yeah. out in the cemetery Terry going to try and see a ghost. I'm all in favor of that. Visit, going on ghost tours, that sort of thing. I yeah. love it. But in terms of like building some device and then using it or perhaps misusing it to try and find evidence of supernatural activity, uh, unless it's an actual proton pack, I'm just not really on board. That would with be it. great if we could get an actual proton pack out of it. I think a lot more people would be involved. But yeah, you got to go unlicensed with it. That's, that's true. Yeah. But this particular episode just so that you are all aware, is not going to be one where we look at ghost hunting and say, oh, well, this is all pseudoscience, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we're not going to do that breakdown. I'm sure you've probably heard or seen that many times before. Uh, This is, we're more interested in ghost stories in this episode. And we're going to look at ghost stories from around the world and how they reflect the human condition. Uh, So yeah, there's lots of studies about EVP or infrasound and how the ghost hunters have flawed methodologies and all that stuff, right? But that's not really what we're going to do in this particular episode. Yeah, we we decided to look to each continent and we realized that that's that's a very broad system and we're going to leave out a lot of wonderful ghost stories and ghost traditions and spirit belief systems. But we decided to just hit each continent uh, that has human uh, habitation and pick out one particular ghost story or ghost belief system that has some sort of anthropological, psychological, or scientific basis for discussion. Right. And why are we doing this, you may ask yourselves. This seems like an unusual topic for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a science podcast. Well, hey, it's October for us. You may be listening to this in January, but it is now October for us in space and time. And every October, we do episodes that are related to Halloween. And this is one of them. Yeah. And it, and by no means does this episode stand outside of uh, a lot of the topics we cover. Right. Uh, because as we discuss in this episode, you're going to find links to episodes that we've covered uh, dealing with psychology and anthropology, belief systems, and just sort of the tension that emerges in a post-colonial world. Yeah. And in fact, we have an entire episode that Robert and I did about Chinese ghost weddings that immediately sprang to mind mm-hmm. here. Uh, but people are probably wondering, well, what do you mean by ghost story? That's a pretty broad you know, thing to talk about. Specifically, we're talking about fiction. 
that either includes a ghost or the characters in the story's belief in ghosts. Sometimes, you know, ghost stories are used to just be scary, right? But we're particularly interested in stories that have ghosts in them here, not just any old scary story. Yeah, I feel like a ghost story really tells you something about the, the the storyteller or the storyteller's culture as it relates to uh, bereavement and death and loss and what they think about the afterlife and just how they deal with death on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think I mentioned this in one of our other October episodes that we've recorded this month. But to me, horror stories in general are cautionary tales. And ultimately, we started passing them down to one another over the generations, whether it was around a campfire or in a book, right, in these Mm -hmm. tomes of literature, uh, because they teach us something about the world and about surviving in it. And so that's what I think I'm interested in finding out here about all these various cultures from around the world and what they've passed on and and are trying to teach one another. Yeah, indeed. And now one more thought before we actually begin to get into the the meat of the episode. We recently had an episode, Joe and I recently did one on uh, the bicameral mind. Mm -hmm. And I know that if if you recently listen to those episodes, you're going to think to that uh, time after time in this, because we're going to be talking about like dead voices speaking to the living. In this episode, we're really not going to get into any bicameral mind uh, theories regarding the subject matter, but certainly... If uh, connections occur to you, uh, write into us. Let us know on social media uh, because there's there's plenty of, of of room to compare the two. Right. So we're going to start off with Europe. Why are we starting with Europe? Well, that is, I think, the foundation for what most people listening to this show have for their idea of a ghost story. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a good place to sort of cement ourselves, especially this is not going to be like a literary podcast where we're going to walk through the sort of literary history of ghost stories, but we'll give you like a very, very concise summary before each of these. Yeah, I should also say that uh, the, the sort of the, the European uh, ghost stink uh, <laughs> uh, uh, manages to work its way into a lot of these other ghost traditions that we're going to discuss. Yes, it does, for sure. We, we, we'll find it in on almost every continent, and we had to – when we were choosing what stories we were going to share with you, we had to be very mindful of the sort of European colonial aspect of ghost stories. Yeah. So ghosts and hauntings, they actually appear in European literature as early as the ancient Greeks. Now, obviously, this extends into Shakespeare with literature and drama. We all know the ghost of uh, Hamlet's father that shows up in mm-hmm. Hamlet, for instance. Now, here's an interesting thing that I learned with relation to the Shakespeare stuff, though. This is where we get the sheeted ghost from. So the whole idea of somebody just wearing a sheet with holes punched into it to, like, represent a ghost doesn't directly come from Shakespeare, but it comes from dramatic presentations of ghosts on the stage. The reason why was they were originally depicted in armor. Hmm. So these big suits of armor would be, like, rigged up on pulley systems and, and like, lowered onto the stage, and that was supposed to invoke a ghost. But as you may imagine, uh, armor's pretty heavy, and that was difficult to pull off every night. So they turned to what they referred to as spirit drapery, uh, and that was essentially putting the sheet over somebody's head, and they would go, ooh. Uh, ghost stories, though, then extended into Gothic literature. And the difference seems to be whether or not the ghost stories themselves had a contemporary setting. And this this seems to be fairly important in the European sense of ghost stories. Now, the golden age in literature of ghost stories really seems to kick off in the 
1800s. You've got Poe, uh, Sheridan Lafanu, who we've talked about on the show before, wrote Green Tea. We have a whole episode on his uh, concept of whether or not green tea would make you see hallucinations or ghosts uh, and lots of others, which leads us to M.R. James, uh, who I really want to talk about here for a second because he's he's really considered the master of the ghost story. And James lived from 1862 to 1936. He was a college provost. He did not tell ghost stories for a living. In fact, he studied medieval history in the Bible. But he is now known best today as a teller of ghost stories because what he would do is every Christmas Eve – he would compose a new ghost story and he would have people come over, whether they were students or acquaintances, and he would present them with a ghost story. And so this is where we get his ghost stories of the antiquary from. And if you haven't read these, I really recommend it. I think they hold up. It is my new holiday tradition to read an M.R. James story every Christmas. Oh, yeah. This is this is one of the, the big names in ghost stories for sure. Yeah. So James wrote an article for a magazine called The Bookman in December 1929. And this was his official five-point designation of what you needed to have in your European-slash-English ghost story, okay? So these are the five things we're looking for here. To be a true ghost story, the supernatural quality of the ghost can't be explained away with rationality, okay? So okay. you can't you can't have like a, a, a science or pseudoscience kind of explanation. All right. The second is that the ghost story itself should inspire the reader with what he calls pleasing terror, uh, so he essentially means like that sort of like adrenaline high that you get when you go to see a horror movie, right? Okay. Like the the uh, excitement of uh, the fight or flight response of uh, being presented with a horror story. The third is a ghost story should not have gratuitous violence or sex in it, which I thought was interesting, especially where most of our ghost stories go nowadays. Now, I have to say that one of my favorite haunted house books, uh, Richard Matheson's Hell House, is mm. already, it, already it's broken two of these rules. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. And it, I, I think that there's an argument to be made that that might have been appropriate for James' time, <laughs> but you can still make it work nowadays. Uh, ghost stories, this is the last one, should have a contemporary setting where the reader can identify with the protagonist. So basically it needs to be – it can't be like a period piece mm -hmm. is what he's saying because you won't necessarily identify with the protagonist as quickly and put yourself in their position. So again, I think you can probably manipulate that. I've seen lots of good ghost stories. Yeah, yeah. We're still – we're still – watching a lot and reading a lot of these uh, these older ghost stories and we don't have any trouble exactly like mr james ghost yeah. stories yeah um but let's step back and take a look at james style in and of himself okay so james wrote ghost stories that were usually set in a small european town uh, his protagonist was almost always what would be like some kind of gentleman scholar uh and they would discover some antique object and that would kick off the plot to the ghost showing up. Mm -hmm. uh, he also thought it was really important to build atmosphere and have like an accelerating pace or intensity to these stories dread. So this leads to his whole pleasing terror idea. The characters in his stories were usually ordinary people. And the reason why is he wanted us again to be able to relate to who they are, especially when they're pulled out of their calm environment by something that's ominous or malevolent, right? So again, just being able to put yourself in the shoes of the, of the main character. Now, after M.R. James in the early 20th century, English ghost stories began to incorporate psychological aspects into them. So when you hear people talk about psychological horror, this is when this kind of kicked off. And I'm thinking here of some of our favorites like Algernon Blackwood and William Hope Hodgson. Oh, yes. Both uh, wonderful. Hodgson wrote uh, The Nightlands. Yeah, yeah. Now – 
Today, the modern ghost tale or what is sometimes referred to just as weird fiction, the writer I think that is most associated with European ghost stories is probably Ramsey Campbell. Okay. Um, so if you're not familiar with him, check out his work. He doesn't exclusively write ghost stories. In fact, he started off as a kind of Lovecraft homage guy. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but he seems to have like taken up that mantle. So now that we've got that out of the way – What's my pick for a great European ghost story that that shows us something about ourselves? I'm going to choose Daphne du Maurier's Don't Look Now. And you may be familiar with this because there was a movie that was made out of it that uh, stars Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie and was directed by Nicholas Rogue. Uh, it's a wonderful film as well. I'm going to be talking about both throughout this. But I really feel like it's a, it's a great example of uh, both the European ghost story and the psychological trend that we started to see in the 20th century. So you may have not heard of Du Maurier. Uh, she actually wrote in a lot of different styles. She wasn't strictly a horror writer per se, but her novels and short stories were adapted into horror movies like Don't Look Now and then Alfred Hitchcock's films Rebecca and the Birds were oh, both based okay. on Du Maurier's stories. I was not, I was not aware that uh, The Birds was based on a, a written work. Okay. Yeah, yeah, me either until I sat down to do this research. So real quick, I'm going to give you the summary of Don't Look Now. Spoilers for Don't Look Now. It's about a husband and wife who are visiting Venice after they have had a young daughter who died. In the book, I believe she died of meningitis. In the film, she is drowned in a pond in their backyard. They go to Venice so they can kind of shake this off, and they encounter two twins, one of whom claims to be a seer. And the seer tells them, oh, I can see your daughter's ghost. She's right there with you. This is a comforting thing. You should be happy. Now, the husband, John, begins seeing a hooded little girl, and he starts following her around Venice. There's some kind of sense that maybe the seer's around, and maybe I'm somehow sensing the ghost of my dead daughter. I'm going to go follow her. Later, he sees his wife with these two twin sisters, and they are on their way back to their hotel in Venice on a boat, and he thinks, well, wait a minute, what's she doing? I saw her just leave for the airport to go to England. Why are they coming back? And he's like yelling at them, and they don't they don't recognize him. They don't seem to hear him, and he's kind of freaking out. Like it, reality seems to be falling apart for him, uh, and one of the twins says, well, actually, what you saw was a vision of the future. Now, at the end of the story, he is killed. There's a – this is kind of a, a random thing, but there's a serial killer running around the streets of <laughs> Venice who kills him. Uh, and in the – I think it's in both the short story – well, definitely in the film. It is a murderous old dwarf woman. Uh, huh. And she murders him. And as he's dying, he realizes – Oh, I was actually seeing the future. My wife was coming back in that future orientation to uh, bury me. This was she was coming back for my funeral because I've been murdered here. And so, like, he sort of falls into this situation where he's like, wait, am I a ghost or have I been a ghost this whole time? Or am I experiencing some kind of extrasensory perception type thing? Huh. Well, I was not. I have not seen it or read it. I was not expecting the female oh, dwarf to play. Man, you've got to see the movie. It's so good. I really recommend the short story too. It's quite good. Now, 
I turned to our old buddy S.T. Joshi, who is the go-to expert on all things horror literature. He has this awesome book, Unutterable Horror, that I use anytime I'm looking for literary reference on the history of horror. And S.T. Joshi's write-up on Daphne du Maurier was about two pages long. He says Don't Look Now is his uh, favorite of her stories. Uh, but then in typical Joshi fashion where he's kind of uh, curmudgeonly about writers, he says her work is not to be entirely despised. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> high marks. Yeah. That's really – for him, those are quite high marks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I recommend it. But obviously, like I said, De Maurier's work kind of goes all over the place. So if you're looking for horror stories, I'd recommend starting with Don't Look Now. OK. Well, how does it uh, match up with M.R. James' rules for ghost stories? Yeah. This is a good question. So let's take a look at M.R. James' rules and put them up against – uh, uh, the De Maurier story here. So, okay, yes, the supernatural isn't explained away with rationality at any point in the story. In fact, the husband is constantly trying to say there's no supernatural events going on. I'm a rational man. I don't believe in these things. And then at the end comes around as he's dying and I guess turning into a ghost. Uh, the story itself, just like uh, M.R. James prescribes, builds dread in a way that I would describe as pleasing terror in his his words. The short story itself is not gratuitous, but I do have to mention the film is infamous for the sex scene between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. It is huh. this a famous, infamous scene of the two of them having sex. And for years, people thought it was real. People thought it was like uh, not simulated, that they had actually had sex in a hotel room and Nicholas Rogue just shot that. And in fact, uh, that's not true at all. Uh, Rogue kind of like played around with the idea over the years of just keeping the press, you know, going with this urban myth. But uh, I'll also say there's a good bit of fake blood in this movie too. You see a lot of like, uh, 1970s style fake blood. It's like really viscous, you know, uh -huh. that's that style. Okay. So it, so it, this is an example though where I would say like the sex and the violence still works in a ghost story. Mm -hmm. Um, the supernatural isn't really explained at any point. The setting at the time was contemporary Venice. They didn't have it in any kind of period. Now, if you're watching it now, it's almost 50 years later. Now, here's what's interesting. When you look at it up against M.R. James tropes, John is just like one of his characters. He's a man of rationality. In the film, he's an architect and he's written a book about geometry. So he's very grounded in the whole idea of being a rational man and uh, just making sure that, you know, he is the patriarchal figure that's kind of trying to hold everything together. Now, at this point, I feel like we, we've established sort of the guidelines for a European horror story. And yeah. we've talked about the, uh, the the qualities of this particular story. What what does all of this reveal about the human condition uh, of Europeans. So I found an article that was written by G. Whisker in 1999, and it's about de Maurier's horror writing, and it was published in the Journal of Gender Studies. And I think that it does a really good job of explaining what she was trying to do without being overt about it. Uh, essentially, Whisker argues that horror at its best intervenes in our critical understanding of the political, social, sexual, and psychological world. Now, it allows us to explore fears, and then we can put them back away again, right? Like, we can take them out of the box, and we can put them back away. We don't have to live with them. And this is especially true if you're following uh, the M.R. James doctrine of ghost stories. Right, yeah, especially the the idea of, like, 
keeping it safe, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like the way that he would write them kept them contained within the world of the ghost story. So when you were done with it, it didn't linger. Now, okay, so Whisker has an interesting argument about Du Maurier, and the argument goes that Du Maurier was providing an entertaining way to interrogate gender representations, and that horror being about power relationships in society was the perfect way for her to do that. So women in horror, in, at least until then, had either been passive and vulnerable victims, or they were depicted as femme fatales that threatened the boundaries of, of the home and of relationships, okay? Now, one claim about horror is that the pleasure that we get it from it, so the, the pleasurable terror of M.R. James, is when the narrative provides closure and that the horror itself is destroyed or contained. Again, so the, the, the idea that, you know, you dispel the horror before you go back out into the real world. This reestablishes the familiar for us. And when the horror is disrupted, our security of self and place can return. But Female writers of horror are unlikely to want to represent their own gender as being either monstrous or somehow, you know, naive. And they're not going to want to celebrate a return to a male-empowered status quo. So Du Maurier herself, she wrote her stories between World War I and World War II. That's arguably an era of conservative gender roles in England. Now, in Don't Look Now and other stories, she seems to be undermining the conservative vision of the role of the husband and the father, and the story deconstructs this. Now, Whisker argues, actually, if you've seen Rogue's film, it is a feminist interpretation of Little Red Riding Hood. And the the reason why here, to give you an idea of the film, he uses red in really powerful ways, and specifically a red Macintosh that both the daughter wears and then uh, the dwarf wears later on. So whenever you see the color red in the film, it kind of fills you with dread. So the story is purposely destabilizing. It makes you constantly uneasy. It misdirects you away from the actual horror that's going to come at the end of the film. Uh, for example, when the story opens and we're very first introduced to the old lady twins, they're described jokingly by John as male twins in drag who are definitely murderers. He's joking around with his wife during dinner, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they meet the twins, they actually introduce themselves. The seer says, oh, hey, your daughter's ghost is sitting safely between you. And John immediately feels as if he's immobilized with terror. And he says, look, this is weird. Like the idea that she's able to say that and see this, even though I'm a rational man, I feel like this is the end. There's no escape. There's no future. So that gives you this idea of – There's something cyclical going on within this story, and it's taking the power away from him as the father. Now, Whisker implies that perhaps the sisters themselves are the fates and that the third Ah. fate is missing because she's the little female dwarf at the end who kills John. That I've seen this movie probably, I don't know, five or six times and read the story. Never occurred to me, but it's an interesting interpretation for sure. So – uh, throughout the story, John reassures his wife, look, Venice is totally safe. You don't need to be worried because she starts worrying about these killings that are going on around the town. He says, look, let's just stick to logic. I'm going to deny the supernatural. It doesn't exist. He rejects her feminine intuition of her emotions, and he tries to reestablish his sort of paternal fantasy of control, which honestly he probably lost a little bit of when his daughter died. So when he sees this little girl in the hood running around Venice, 
he wants to rescue her. He wants to reattain that. Uh, and instead of needing protection, the hooded girl turns out to be the monster who ultimately kills him. So you can see there, Du Maurier is doing the psychological here. She's taking pretty much all of M.R. James' tropes, but she's turning them against the Jamesian idea of the ghost story to examine gender roles. So I thought that was an interesting take on the European subgenre of ghost story. You know, she's she's doing something different with it. She's using horror to its ends to sort of expose something about culture and society uh, and at the same time uh, fill you with pleasing terror, as James would call it. Huh. It's, it's interesting, too, to look at this as European storytellers who are, are conscious of the properties of their own ghost traditions and then utilizing those for social commentary and just sort of to make sense of the – the world around them. Yeah. And in some of these examples we're going to look at, you have the same thing going on in other parts of the world as colonial Europeans go to some new land, encounter some new mode of spirit traditions. Yeah. And then they're, they're either taking at, at, at the very worst, I guess they're, they're taking those and just exploiting them, using them to create new stories for amusement. But in the better scenarios, I think they're, they're trying to understand what they've gotten themselves into, what's going on in this uh, collision of, of cultures. Yeah, we're going to see that time and again throughout the uh, rest of the episode. That's why I wanted to put Europe up at the top yeah. here so we could sort of see it's a little conservative and stodgy, but it, it has its own rule set essentially. Uh, it would be interesting to see how M.R. James' idea of the ghost story plays out across other cultures. All right. Well, on that note, let's head on to Asia. All right. So I'm imagining we've got like a big map of the world and our little plane is yes. uh, following a dotted line from uh, from Venice to uh, where? Hong Kong? Well, you know, I, when I first when we first sort of agreed to the the, uh, the the outline for this episode, I thought, oh, well, you know, there's so many wonderful Chinese ghost stories or there's so many wonderful Japanese ghost stories or, hey, Thailand has a, has a rich tradition of of hauntings and ghosts. Yeah. But instead, I, f- I find that we are going to wind up in Mongolia. Oh, OK. Yeah. OK. All right. And uh, it, it will involve Chinese ghosts, but we're in Mongolia. So we all have cultural perceptions of haunted houses, right? And as such, we have our own cultural haunted house attractions, haunted attractions as they're called, uh, that speak to these expectations. Uh, here in Atlanta, we have an amazing one in the form of Netherworld. When I was a kid in uh, rural Tennessee, there was a there was one called Scare Mare that we all called Prayer Mare yep. because it was at a, it was hosted by a, a local church. Oh, was it a Hell House? Uh, it was like a Hell House light, like a lower budget. Like they mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of, uh, they didn't have the budget for a lot of really heavy, uh, you know, <laughs> religious overtones. Yeah. But I they were there. Probably explain what that is to our audience, huh? So a Hell House is a thing that's unique here in America, I think to the Southeast too, uh, that is a, a version of a haunted house attraction, but it is heavily religious based. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that as you go through the room, you will see like what the punishments of hell will be like if you continue to commit sins. And then at the end, you're hopefully saved. Yeah. There's a wonderful documentary about this called, called hell house. Yeah. It's quite good. Uh, yeah. So prayer mare or scare mare that I went to, <laughs> it was a lower budget, but at the end you would exit into a tent and some, and this preacher would, would preach at you. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, Various cultural expectations are playing into that as well. Uh, you know, I, I, I do want to point out, though, that I believe there are some some Buddhist-oriented uh, uh, hell houses of a, of a kind oh, yeah. uh, that you'll find in Asia as well. Have you uh, have you seen that movie, The Houses That October Built? No. It's uh, a 
It's an okay found footage horror movie about people going around to various haunted attractions trying to find the scariest one. And then, of course, whatever they find ends up being real. Are they they just traveling around in the U.S. or? It's in the U.S. Yeah, they're in like a Winnebago. In fact, there's a sequel coming out in like a month. Oh, okay. Well, uh, for, for this, uh, for this ghost story that we're about to get into, I want you to, uh, to set aside your own experiences with U.S. haunted houses or even most Asian haunted houses because we are now going to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, capital of Mongolia. Okay. Now, imagine yourself in Mongolia. You look up at this billboard for a haunted attraction, and it's illustrated with a pale face with bloody tears. And the text reads as follows, though obviously in Mongolian instead of English. Have you experienced ghosts from movies so far? You have now the opportunity to experience them in person by entering a scary haunted house. A family of Chinese origin slaughtered each other for obscure reasons. They remain in this haunted house. While the house masters who become ghostly corpses will serve you some tea, the dead children will run around you. That sounds great. I would definitely pay to go do that. <laughs> it does sound unique. Yeah, it yeah. sounds sounds rather different. That than sounds what better than Netherworld instead of like somebody with a fake chainsaw just jumping out. And no, those are real chainsaws. They oh. just don't have the chains oh. on them. Yeah. Okay. Good thing I didn't get my hand in there. <laughs> All right. So the, the really interesting thing here is this speaks to a specifically Mongolian take on ghosts and hauntings. Uh, one in which the ghosts of Chinese merchants, silken-robed and long-bearded, haunt the places where they bury their accumulated wealth or near where they bury their accumulated wealth, and they're there haunting the area, seeking their gold or their belongings. Okay. They walk in small steps and either speak in Chinese or with a quote-unquote funny Chinese accent. Huh. Okay, so you and I have both spent time in China, but I haven't been to Mongolia before, so I'm not quite sure what the dialect sounds like there. Yeah, or or more to the point, what does a Chinese accent sound like in Mongolian? That's that's something yeah. that's kind of beyond perhaps beyond our ability to really grasp. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this sounds like a superstition that's loaded with cultural weight and perceptions of other races and nationalities, then you are absolutely correct. Uh, I turned to a, a, a really insightful paper about this by George Delaplace uh, out of uh, Cambridge, and it was published in the journal Inner Asia, titled Chinese Ghosts in Mongolia, and this is from 2010. Now, Delaplace describes the haunted attraction. Uh, it has these monster movie faces on the wall. There's there's Russian furniture, as, uh, as uh, the Mongolians tend to refer to it, of uh, thoroughly non-Mongolian home uh, furnishings uh, influenced by European motifs. Okay. There's art on the walls that's uh, you know expressly Chinese. And then when the ghosts start talking to the visitors to the haunted attraction through uh, recordings on headphones, they're speaking exclusively in untranslated Chinese, not Mongolian. Oh, okay. Okay. Now – one of the things you have to keep in mind in processing all of this is, uh, first of all, the modern nature of Mongolia is a buffer state between the powers of Russia and the People's Republic of China, despite its past status as uh, as conquerors and kings of both regions. Uh, the Mongolian haunted house here that we're looking at, it's defined by foreign influences. You're not walking into a haunted Mongolian house. You're walking into this, this weird... Uh, uh, you know, hybrid of Russian and Chinese influences. Okay, yeah. Delaplace writes, quote, 
Through the setting of this sitting room, Chinese people appear as some sort of hyper-foreigner whose culture is imagined as a heterogeneous assemblage of typically non-Mongolian features. Chinese language, furthermore, perhaps one of the most prominent items of Chinese culture to foreigners is seemingly meant to be frightening in it, in and of itself to Mongol ears. Hmm, okay. Now, he notes that how this actually shook out is that the uh, uh, the organizer of the haunted house essentially bought it wholesale in China, mm-hmm. and that's why the, the Chinese language is there and it's untranslated. But uh, it's believed that this ended up working in its, in its favor uh, because, again, it plays on an existing motif of Chinese ghosts. So they bought a house and moved it to Mongolia? Well, it's kind of like here in the States. We have the haunted attraction industry, and they have industry trade shows, and you can go and buy all these various set pieces. Oh, okay. So essentially, the organizer bought a large portion of this as is from uh, uh, from somewhere in China. Gotcha. Okay. So it's not as as calculated a move as as one might think, but it still, again, plays into an existing motif. And that again is that, uh, is that you have these, uh, these Chinese ghosts in Mongolian cities that have a quote, notorious history of Chinese migration. Now this tradition uh, emerges from a colonial past, yet also speaks to the complications uh, mod- of modern Mongolia and its interactions with Chinese enterprise. And the ghosts are seen as immigrant parasites, almost a sort of economic and cultural vampire. All right. So we're immediately seeing how the, the culture of Mongolia influences what their scare culture is essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and how their their past interactions with the Chinese and various uh, racial racial stereotypes about uh, about the Chinese, how those factor into their Han industry. Okay. And this this is something that's not completely out of line with with haunted attractions here in the states. Right. Uh, there there have been haunted attractions that have been criticized for leaning into racial stereotypes as well. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of uh, here in Georgia, we have like haunted hayrides around Atlanta that you can go do where you, you know, you ride through a a cornfield essentially. And uh, again, people with fake chainsaws or maybe real chainsaws jump out of the corn at you and try to spook you. So we have this idea of the Chinese merchant ghost in Mongolia. And it's, it's, it's excessively far and it's difficult to actually banish these ghosts in large part because the, the, the basic idea here is that the average Mongolian doesn't really understand how this, how the Chinese think, how this sort of stereotypical Chinese merchant thinks, and therefore it's difficult to communicate with them, difficult to to try and banish them. Okay. Now, you you have variations on this ghost story. For instance, you have ghosts of war, particularly uh, of the uh, Mongolian struggle for independence in the 20th century. This would have been the Mongolian Revolution of 1921, in which the Soviet Red Army back to the overthrow of the Russian White Guard, these were anti-communist forces, and also ended the Chinese occupation of Mongolia, which had been uh, going on since 1919. Now, Mongolia remained a Soviet satellite state until around 1990, so we're, talk- so we're, so we're talking wandering ghost store- soldiers here, a ghost general, that sort of thing. Hmm. Okay. But mostly, it's Chinese merchant ghosts. That, that you hear ghost stories about in Mongolia. And I think that's rather telling. It, it forces you to ask the question, are the scars of economic colonial exploitation 
even more traumatic than those of actual warfare, actual yeah. actual bloodshed. Yeah, especially when you consider too, like the the push and pull of capitalism versus communism in that region. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So I'm going to roll through just some examples of this kind of ghost story uh, uh, from Mongolia, uh, and these are all related in Della Place's article. Uh, so there's the ghost of a Chinese man who becomes rich transporting water via horse cart. And one day he's knocked off his uh, horse cart. He's injured and he dies. And he comes back to haunt his former home in search of his search of his horse, his cart and his money. And this takes place in the 1980s. He goes around saying, where is my water carrying horse cart? Have my two powerful purebred horses been stolen and eaten? I know where I have put my gold. OK, so it's ultimately it's like about the money. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I wonder, too, how much the possession, the horse, remember? Yeah. I wonder how much, too, that has to do then with um, poverty in the region as well. There's a definite economic factor, Delaplus argues. This seems to be the case with the story that I have from Africa that we'll talk about later. Yeah. Yeah. I I think we both found that in seeking out examples from every every continent, it was impossible to avoid uh, like post-colonial trauma or anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so another one. This is from a, a haunted courtyard in uh, Ulaanbaatar. And this is haunted, again, by the ghost of a Chinese man. This one in particular became rich running a restaurant in the 1950s. And it was said that when he died, his soul took refuge in his money. Hmm. Now, this uh, individual was supposedly fully integrated into Mongolian society. And so he did not receive a proper Chinese funeral, thus the haunting. In this particular ghost story, they tried a Buddhist ceremony to drive the spirit away. It didn't work. The current owner of the property lost his temper. He throws some coins out into the courtyard, and he lambasts the ghost with a racial slur. Wow. Yeah. And this causes the ghost to leave, but then the owner has to do this every night to keep the ghost away. And this is a story from around 2003. Wow, okay. And the ghost in this scenario is just heard to say, hey, my money, hey, my money. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't know that I've necessarily – maybe I'm missing something here, audience, but I can't think of a Western example of this that's so heavily uh, embedded in economics. Yeah. The economics are key here because Delphus points out that the, the, this is a, this is a typical scenario, not the ghost part, but the business uh, aspect of it here. Uh, during the Qing dynasty uh, – this was the last imperial dynasty of China that ended in 1912 – uh, you would see Chinese-owned businesses in Mongolia, and it involved a China-based owner and a Chinese manager who owned a stake in the in the uh, business and spent a large portion of his time on site in Mongolia seasonally. Hmm. They would often take a Mongolian name, and despite a law against it, they uh, they might take a Mongolian wife and start a family there, even if they had a family back in China as well. And economically, they had an advantage over locals, and they operated a harsh credit policy on the Mongolians. And when there were revolts against uh, Qing occupation, they often took their anger out on these Chinese businesses and thieves that that hit these businesses. They had a Robin Hood kind of charm among the locals. Okay, so I'm I'm trying to understand this from our American Western perspective. It sounds like what some people refer to derisively here in America as a carpetbagger. So somebody mm-hmm. who is not from a region moves to that region and then is like economically successful but doesn't uh, give that money or or in some cases political influence 
back to the community. They keep it for themselves or bring it back to their home. Yeah, the idea here is that even though this merchant, this overseer of the business would have, to a certain extent, immersed themselves in, in the, the, the local uh, culture, they were still seen by others as sort of the, the parasitic arm of, uh, of Chinese interests. Okay. So we're left with this idea, this, this really just ultimately gross stereotype that Chinese people are so stingy Again, a stereotype brought on by economic policies of the time that they came back as ghosts even if there had been no violent tragedy, which is generally the rule for Mongolian ghost traditions. It's also a, a general practice for an elderly Mongolian man to distribute his belongings among his children before he dies, though they might have a prized possession that serves as a quote-unquote refuge thing. Okay. That might need to be buried to avoid haunting. So you have like a Mongolian grandfather. He's tended to most of his estate, handed it off, getting ready for death. Uh, but say he had a favorite soup bowl that he used. Yeah. Well, that might be a thing. You know, it, it has no real value particularly, but it's valuable enough to him that his his ghost might haunt it. And you have to deal with that. And the idea here is that they saw the Chinese as the kind of people that – their soul would get caught up in virtually everything they owned, all their possessions, all their money that they were, they, they viewed them as that materialistic. Hmm. And of course you also have to think in all of this about like just cultural differences between the Mongolian and the Chinese. The Mongolians traditionally had a, a nomadic culture. Uh, they would move around. They would be able to pick up and go. Whereas uh, the Chinese culture was more uh, set in one place. Hmm. So thinking back to M.R. James's rules, it seems like they're adhering to at least one of them in that there's like an antique object, right, that seems to be the like center point for the ghost. Yeah. And somebody discovering this object or touching it or whatever triggers the plot of the haunting. Yeah. But I think the the Mongolian version here is that, yes, that's the way it should work in a mm. traditional Mongolian ghost story. But they're saying that these Chinese merchants, they are so greedy that that their they their ghost it just caught gets caught up in every material thing that they own yeah. and every shred of their money. So Delaplace sums it up as follows: "Quote: Chinese ghosts are frightening because they bridge a collective memory of past colonial exploitation and a present concern about migration. They picture present day Chinese migrants not as new businessmen but merely as returning colonial merchants, uh, as current instances of an ongoing parasitic relationship." Hmm. That is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I know, you know, Asian ghost stories have become more popular over here in the last 15 years, maybe. And, you know, obviously, uh, Ringu or Juan, stuff like that. But mm -hmm. I can't think of any Chinese examples off the top of my head. And I wonder. Oh, well, if there was, there was one that came out a few years back that I keep meaning to watch, uh, titled, uh, Oh, dude, was it called Rigamortis? Oh, I've seen Rigamortis. Yeah, it's a Cantonese language film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a cool movie. Um, I don't remember necessarily it having this economic aspect. To oh, it, no, no, it, yeah. I, I don't think that it necessarily did. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, really, for it would be, I guess it would be interesting and probably uncomfortable to watch a Mongolian horror movie based around like a, a kind of an obscene stereotype yeah, like this. Yeah, totally. I mean, it would be interesting from a sort of anthropological uh, standpoint, but uh, this is what definitely a case where the, the ghost story reveals a lot of unpleasant things about a relationship between two peoples. Well, why don't we take a break 
And when we get back, we can take our little dotted line airplane to Malawi in Africa and explore something similar. All right, we're back. We've hit Europe and we've hit Asia. What's next? Africa. And I was excited because I anticipated that there was just going to be this like plethora of great African ghost stories available, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I had the hardest time finding anything. Uh, What's interesting is that despite Africa having a rich mythological folklore as well as many different belief systems about the afterlife – Almost all the ghost stories, per se, that are available are post-colonial. So to me, this meant that there is still some kind of Eurocentric thing that's being worked off of the same literary system going back to our European example and Uh M.R. James there. And I was looking for something that would be a little different than that. So there's lots of ghost stories that are in South Africa, for instance. But I couldn't find any that were from before Dutch or British colonization. So then I considered, well, maybe I should turn to the Middle East instead. There's a rich ghost story tradition there that goes back to A Thousand and One Nights. Oh, yeah. But one real-life story kept coming up over and over again in my search. And so I decided to have this be the one that I shared. This is from 2005 in Malawi. It was widely reported that the then president Bingu Wa Mutharika had fled his 300 room palace because he believed that it was haunted. Now, two journalists quoted his religious advisor, Reverend Malani Mtonga, as saying that Mutharika had summoned religious leaders there specifically to exercise evil spirits. Uh, a third journalist reported that Mutharika had sensed invisible rodents crawling all over him at night. So when this came out publicly, Mutharika was not happy about it. And he totally denied it. And he said, I have not seen any ghosts yet. I have never in my life been afraid of ghosts. It's important to note here, too, he is Roman Catholic. He was Roman Catholic. So he had this strange, maybe not strange if you're from Malawi, but uh, he was integrating Roman Catholic religious beliefs with the sort of traditional cultural beliefs from that area. Oh yeah, and this this is this is a trend we see time and time again. Yeah. So police officials actually arrested two of these journalists and they drove them 300 miles to a police station and then charged them with a statute that made it illegal to ridicule the president. Uh this obviously recalled a less democratic past for that nation. It really worried people about what his relationship with the freedom of the press was going to be. The nation's top prosecutor at the time said that the stories that they had written were too irresponsible to ignore and that he was going to pursue a criminal conviction that would place them in prison for up to two years. Now, it sounds like what ended up happening was they were released on bail shortly afterwards. So I think this was kind of like a warning shot for Mm -hmm. the, the press in Malawi. Now, it turns out, though, Malawi has a history of ghost stories in its state houses. So the first head of state, Hastings Kamuzu Banda, said that he was regularly visited by mysterious dwarves Again. at the Sanjika Palace. Yeah, what is up with these ghost dwarves? <laughs> Uh, and his successor, Bakili Maluzi, also suspected that there were spirits there. So the former press officer for one of those administrations said, look, no one could sleep at that presidential residence. So we, we ended up moving to another one. 
So I'm reading this and I'm going, what's going on here? This is an article in the New York Times from 2005. Something strange is up. According to the then editor of Malawi's newspaper, which is called The Chronicle, ghosts and spirits are understood to be a part of everyday reality in Malawi. And it was not a taboo subject. And he was surprised that the president reacted this way. Now, when The New York Times reported it, they said in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, traditional superstitions coexist seamlessly with modern sensibilities. Now, I found an example of one. This isn't a ghost per se, but I thought this was worth noting because it's especially upsetting. So I couldn't find anything about ghosts, but it turns out that in Malawi, albinos are a valuable commodity for their body parts. Huh. Uh, they're often trafficked across borders for use in witchcraft rituals. So basically the idea is that the body parts of albinos are said to bring riches, success, power, or sexual conquest. Uh, and the mutilated bodies of albinos are found later on without their hands, their feet, their breasts, their genitals, their skin, sometimes their eyes or their hair. So this is real life horror going on here, oh, God, yes. but it's something that's broadly understood. Now, the ghost thing is interesting. Was this simply about saving face because Mutharika didn't like that he looked scared to a global audience? The country's information minister actually claimed that the president was totally unaware of the arrests of these journalists before they happened. He wasn't responsible for them necessarily. Then Mtonga reversed and said, Oh, no, no, no. I, I All those quotes about me saying that the president was worried about uh, spirits being in his palace, that that's not true at all. He doesn't believe in charms. So there's clearly some kind of spin doctoring going on here. So what's up with this haunted building, first of all? Like, why have three presidents in Malawi uh, supposedly seen ghosts there? Well, it turns out that it is a $100 million mansion that was erected in Malawi under Banda. That's the first president. Mm -hmm. While his nation was undergoing appalling poverty, this place has 300 rooms, two helipads, a game park, and a banquet room for 600 people. His successor called it obscene opulence and when the government you know got a hold of it later on they said maybe we should just turn this into a five-star hotel like it just looks really bad when the leader of the country lives here when mutharika was elected the place was in total disrepair so he had it renovated and then he moved in and said look it's actually going to cut costs if i live here rather than this other palace in this other city now what i'm wondering here Maybe these ghost stories that are going on, and again, these are real stories. Mm -hmm. This isn't, this isn't MR James telling a story of a learned gentleman. This is the actual president of a nation who seems to be seeing ghosts in his home. Uh, maybe they're manifestations of the presidential guilt over living in such opulence while the citizenry goes poor. So I did a little bit more digging to learn about Mutharika. Uh, he passed away in, in 2012 and the Guardian's obituary starts off by saying he went from being one of Africa's most respected leaders to a repressive despot in just two years. Hmm. So it seems like and that was right – so 2005 was toward the beginning of his time in power there. So it seems like this is a guy 
He had previously been a loans officer at the World Bank. Then he became a dictator afterwards. And when the global recession reached Malawi in 2010, he actually responded violently. He curtailed civil liberties. Protesters of his presidency were shot dead by the police there. And he was criticized for purchasing a $13 million private jet for himself just before this. So he died in 2012 from a heart attack. I couldn't find a ton more about this. I would love it if our listeners who out there know way more about Malawi than we do could chime in. But it seems to me from afar looking at this that there's some kind of, again, post-colonial guilt, right? Like he seemed, Mutharika seemed to be this guy who had traveled around the world and had a Western education and came back and was successful and rich and powerful. And yet the people were still poor uh-huh. and were upset at him for these choices he made, living in this huge mansion, buying this private jet, all this stuff. And they reacted to it poorly. But maybe his subconscious was also reacting to it poorly and also his predecessors. Clearly, they all had the same weird ghost guilt going on. And of course, one of the things about a, a ghost story even like this, of, of course, is that it becomes the property of all those who tell it. It becomes the pro- the property of of outsiders looking in, as well as d- the local residents, the people that 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 lived and perhaps suffered under him. So it can be a way to to understand or better understand what has happened. Yeah. Now, my understanding is you encountered somewhat of a similar thing when you looked at Australia's ghost stories. Uh, certainly, yeah. When it comes to that, the the idea of like two different uh, cultural traditions coming together and creating kind of a hybrid belief system. Okay. Which is certainly what I was expecting uh, from Australia, because you obviously have a rich. Uh, aboriginal tradition that involves you know spirit realm and spirits walking among us yeah. and then you have the european traditions that are brought there with uh, the colonial influence uh, and the you know the, the western australians okay. so it seems like i mean it's we we have a, a a lot of fiction out there some cinematic where we see uh these traditional values of the aboriginal people kind of melding with european expectations or it's europeans telling stories about aboriginal uh, spiritualism. Okay, so there's certainly Australian ghost stories, but w- it looks like you've got a book here that you turn to. So there's actual research done on on this tradition. Right. Uh, there are two authors in particular, Ken Gelder and Jane M. Jacobs, that came up a couple of times. Uh, they wrote a book titled Uncanny Australia, Sacredness and Identity in a Postcolonial Nation. Uh, it really, really excellent uh, book. Check it out if you want to explore more on this topic. Uh, but I was reading an article they they wrote titled "The Postcolonial Ghost Story," in which the the authors point out that one encounters a form of of uh, postcolonial racism in Australia, in which Aboriginal people are seen as lacking in some areas. Uh, you know, such as, uh, uh, you know, wealth and access to various, uh, you know, properties of the modern society. But okay. then they're also seen as, uh, as having too much in other areas. In other words, they have, they have certain rights pertaining to sacred lands that sometimes rubs the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Western, uh, modern Australia the wrong way. Right. Yeah. Well, we have a similar thing here in the States with the native peoples here, mm-hmm. their sacred lands and then, Oh, geez, we, the whole history of those people being relegated to reservations or places that aren't actually their homes. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it, it matches up with a lot of, uh, 
of surviving tensions between uh, native peoples and colonial powers. Okay. And Gelder and Jacobs uh, say the following about it. Quote, in this climate, aborigines certainly continue to receive sympathy for what they do not have, good health, adequate housing, and so on. And yet at the same time, they draw resentment from white Australians because they seem to be claiming more than their, quote, fair share. Still, there's this expected exchange of beliefs and superstitions. The Europeans, for their part, incorporated bits of local folklore into their own stories and, of course, borrowed and westernized aspects of it for their own fiction. Meanwhile, as Philip A. Clark writes in his 2007 folklore paper, Indigenous Spirit and Ghost Folklore of Settled Australia, modern Aboriginal people are in many cases less familiar with the complex creation myths of their people but cling to hybrid beliefs that sprang up in the wake of colonialism. And this, this fits with what we've talked about before on the show uh, involving cargo cults. Yeah. The idea that you you ultimately have to find some sort of hybrid creation of culture in many cases in order to survive culturally. Like you, you, you are just going to be plowed over by these intimidating colonial forces in many cases unless you find this common ground. Uh, this kind of cultural sort of survival tactic. Yeah, I'm thinking back on our episode about the serpent and the rainbow and uh, the whole idea that like certain kinds of voodoo cultures are an integration of local mysticism with like Roman Catholicism, for right. instance. Okay. Now, out of these hybrid uh, beliefs, the, the, the hybrid ghost stories that emerge, uh, Gelder and Jacobs argue in their book that, that these Australian ghost stories are not so much about possession such as the owning or acquiring of a haunted house or a haunted object, but they're about dispossession. Now, specifically, some of the aboriginal motifs that are uh, that are still represented in these hyper-belief systems, you have this idea that there are just a lot of spirits and that one kind of lives uh, um, among them. Uh, many of these spirits have uh, have humanoid qualities to them. Okay. And there are also traditions of, like, little people and sorcerers, shapeshifters, uh, etc. Uh, now Clark, uh, writes that the Aboriginal p- people also believe that there was a powerful element of the human spirit that for most individuals lay dormant in them throughout their lives. And this was called the Prupi. And belief in this uh, still lingers to this day, sometimes as a, a potent, potent aspect of the self that may be called upon as a living spirit or helper in order to, you know, protect yourself or attack someone. Okay. Now, a gupa, however, is the spirit of a deceased person and operates much like a ghost in other traditions. A gupa, while disruptive, will eventually, quote, come to rest with the old people. And these are different from uh, the sort of evil spirits, the bad spirits, kind of demons that exist uh, in Aboriginal belief systems as well. Okay, so there's a complex uh, afterlife belief then. Yeah, but they do have something that is a lot like the Western ghost and therefore melds well with the colonial ideas of what a ghost should be. Got it. Now, and, and for that reason, belief in Gupa persists. And Clark points out that massacre sites and missions are frequent haunts. Uh, this is, you'll love this as a dog owner. Uh, dogs can often see 
these spirits when we cannot. And you can see them, too, perhaps, if you uh, get right behind your dog and you stare through the space between the dog's ears. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this actually came up in, in multiple cultures, the, mm-hmm. the idea, because you get the uh, dogs who just kind of stare off into space weirdly and you're not quite sure what they're looking at. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, in multiple cultures, the idea is that, oh, well, they can see the dead. Yeah, clearly they're, they're seeing something that is hidden from us. Mm-hmm. Now, even today, when a gupa is spotted, the Aboriginal community, they have to discuss the relevance of the sighting. What does it mean? Why is it occur- occurring? And particularly, how is it linked to any recent conflict or tension concerning local Aboriginal affairs? Now, so this is, this is rather important here, I think, because essentially you're seeing, um, uh, the, the idea that sightings, ghost sightings, lead to community discussions. Oh, okay. Uh, so you might have a ghost that props, uh, that pops up because of a suicide, uh, because of a death that is somehow connected to drug addiction. So you have, you have deaths that are occurring mm-hmm. due to societal problems within the Aboriginal community. And then if the ghost is sighted, then the community must discuss the problem. So it, it becomes a, a reason to have these important discussions about real-world issues. So it's sort of a manifestation of the community's unconscious, right? And, like, these are maybe societal things that they need to discuss, but they don't realize they need to discuss them until this person dies and then their spirit starts haunting. Right, yeah. And, you know, when you get into – you can also get into the whole question of, well, what are people – are the people actually seeing something? Are they just making it up as some sort of – psychological affair. I mean, yeah. there there's so many different interpretations of what could be happening. Uh, a callback to our Will of the Wisp episode from uh, a year or two ago, there are some who think that the initial uh, Gupa sighting could be connected to some sort of Will of the Wisp phenomenon. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, it could be any number of things. It could be a hallucination, trick of the eye, uh, whatever it is, something something strikes an individual as being ghostly, mm-hmm. and then they can connect it to some sort of a tragic event in the community and then bring it forward as a discussion point. Wow. So this is actually like a, an extension of what I was talking about earlier with just horror stories in general, that they're reflective of cultural issues. But they're taking it a step further and saying like, okay, this is reflective of issues that we're dealing with. Now we need to address those issues as a group. Right. Now, I know we have a number of Australian uh, Australian listeners. We have some uh, some Kiwi listeners as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would love to hear from you if you have specific ghost stories that you think reveal something about uh, about culture in your neck of the woods. Uh, let us know. I would love to hear from you. So let's take one more break. And when we get back, we're going to head over to South America. All right, so we're turning to South America now, uh, and then we'll end with North America, which is probably what you and I are most familiar with and, and most of our audience is most familiar mm-hmm. with. So what do you find in South America? Is it pretty common in terms of – or are we finding yet another example of the post-colonial uh, influence on ghosts? There is there's definitely a post-colonial influence. Okay. But this tradition I think is more revealing about pre-colonial um, – beliefs oh, in this case because it concerns a, a particular uh, native people. Okay. So for this one uh, I turned to a really captivating paper titled 3 Days for Weeping: Dreams, Emotions and Death in the Peruvian Amazon by Glenn Shepard published uh, 2002 in Medical Anthropology Quarterly. And this is one of those, you know, w- 
this is one of those papers. Uh, we read a lot of different uh, academic papers mm. for this show, and this is one of those that managed to weave together a personal story with anthropological commentary uh, in a way that just really worked. Yeah, that's pretty rare in the stuff that we read, but I'm thinking of like ethnographies mm. tend to have more uh, – allowance for like a subjective narrative to be yeah. inserted among their observations. This yeah, sounds... it's certainly far less common in say, uh, you know, archaeological right. paper. But but this one just, just was really captivated me as a, it really stood apart from uh, from even other excellent papers I've read. Cool. So Shepard worked among the uh, Matsaginka of Peru in uh, the late 1980s. Now, the Matsaginka, they're an indigenous people of the Amazon Basin jungle regions of southeastern Peru. And his paper kicks off with an account of a local woman who suffered uh, uh, uterine bleeding, uh, which was said to have begun one day, quote, when she heard an unknown voice calling to her while she was working alone in the family garden. Pain and nightmares followed, and he ended, he ended up convincing her to, hey, let me bring you in for medical treatment. So he took her on this long journey. They encountered numerous complications, so travel, delays, her being unaccustomed to modern medical exams. Even encountered a problem where they ran into a, a traveling Metzenginka shaman, and this proved stressful for her as well because he was from another group and was therefore considered something of a warlock. Okay. Like they were, there was this ingrained uh, um, suspicion of shamans from other uh, groups of the same people. So I'm imagining she like sensed a lot of just kind of bad energy in general with this journey. Yeah, and you know she's she's quite ill and mm. uh, and, and ends up ends up dying. Oh, now, uh, but but it ends up uh, he uses this as a way to to further analyze what's going on with the Matsaginka people and uh, and what their beliefs reveal about their uh, about their their customs and their view of death and bereavement. Now the Matsaginka believe in spirits and uh, there are two varieties of note and they both have simple similar uh, wording. So on one hand you have the uh, Kamagarini, these are the bringers of death. Now these are evil spirits essentially demons that uh, seduce and or sexually assault Matsaginka people, resulting in illness or death. Uh, Shepard writes that the Matsaginka are generally a sex-positive bunch, but they frown upon what they see as deviant sexuality or obsessive sexuality, and uh, uh, the, the Kamagarini may, pu- may punish this. And they're defined by perversions of diet, sexuality, and social behavior. Hmm, okay. So in this story of the, the young woman who uh, was suffering, uh, the idea is that she they thought that she had been attacked by a Kamagarini. Oh, okay. Now, the second variety is a Kamatsiri, which means dead person. And these are more traditional ghosts. In some respects, these are the spirits of the dead, and I think it's it's very telling given how they view them. So like the demon uh, that we described already, the bringer of death, uh, these ghosts smell bad and they're frightful. So if you dream about one, it's a total nightmare. You're going to wake up with aches and you can uh, and you can blame any existing aches on that ghost dream. Ah, uh, man, maybe that's what's been going on with me lately. Well, I thought it was just like a barometric pressure change, but it might be ghost dreams. Well, you might need to take some of the psychoactive and medicinal plants that they use to dispel these dreams, uh, especially if you have these de- dreams about a, a deceased loved one. Now, seeing a ghost while awake, for them, it's a serious health scare. So you have this scenario where 
there are these demonic entities out there and they're after you. And if they get you, it's going to make you physically ill and then you may die. Okay. And then when an individual dies, they will typically come back as a ghost. And, and that ghost is also a frightful thing that can make you sick, that can bring on physical illness and death and essentially kind of leech your soul uh, out of you. So there's this whole taxonomy going on here of these various types of ghosts and how they're leading to other ghost creation. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Now, Shepard says that the uh, the Comet Siri here serves as a way to dehumanize the dead. Quote, the dead person is no longer a beloved spouse or relative, a human companion with a name and, and a social identity. Immediately upon death, they become Kamatsiri, dead person, ghost, belonging to the ranks of demons and dreadful spirits uh, that are the ultimate cause of illness and death. Ghosts for the Matsuginka are not anonymous spirits from bygone generations. And a ghost only visits the people it knew in life. Uh, so they are alone, they are needy, they are awful, and they are to be shunned and avoided so that they might travel on to the next life. So this is very different from other cultures where they revere their dead. Right. So it, it's an interesting twist because generally the motif with ghosts and bereavement here in, in, in Western society is – uh, the living are losing it. We're crying, we're weeping, we're, we're expressing our emotions, and then here comes this stoic ghost that wanders in and creeps us out. Sure. But it's the reverse for, for, uh, for the, in this tradition. The, the ghost is this needy emotional thing. Yeah. And the humans are the ones that are going to react stoically. Like there is yeah. this intense cultural pressure to not, uh, let your emotions out. In the, in the face of death. Ah, okay. Okay. So this is very tied into that analysis of don't look now. The idea of like maintaining your rationality, maintaining your self-control, not allowing yourself to fall into the emotional. Yeah. Like the emotion alone is, is going to make you sick. Uh, Shepard says, quote, just as happiness is synonymous with health, so is sadness synonymous with illness. Sadness represents a condition in which the soul turns away in contemplation, disassociating itself from the rest of the physical uh, and social body. Now, another uh, interesting uh, telling thing about uh, the Matsunginka here is that the dead uh, were not traditionally buried, uh, not at least not until missionaries came along and were really insistent on the fact that the dead should be buried. Okay. And the idea here is that, well, the ground, that's, that's full of flames and foul vapors and demons and illnesses. The only thing that should be buried there are stillborn children, deformed children, and second-born twins, because they are essentially doppelgangers, I <laughs> beliefs. Wow, okay. So instead, they practiced an exposure burial in which the dead were left among the buttress roots of large trees. And if you were old and dying, well, you might just take it on yourself to walk out into the wilds all alone and find some tree roots to die among. So this is kind of like sky burial, which we've talked about yeah. on the show before. Yeah, the elements and, and would essentially consume you. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is also... Uh, Interesting because uh, Shepard says that the exposure burial served to chart their soul's journey into the afterlife based on the body's state of decay. So you could look at the dead body of, uh, of, of one of your people and you could say, okay, well, this body is really decaying. It's, it's a safe body to be around because the, the, the ghost is far away. But if the body is fresh or the body hasn't decayed all that much, well, this is dangerous because that means they are near. They're still – 
more seemingly alive. Wow. And it's just so it's really interesting to look at that in terms of a, a culture's bereavement tactic. Like it's such yeah. a stoic um, you know, shields up way of dealing with death. Like, no, the dead person is a, is a dangerous ghost now. Right. And I can't feel anything because that will endanger me. Yeah. So once you die in that culture, you're sort of shunned until you've been dead for a while and it's okay to think about you or experience emotion related to you because your spirit is so far away. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. So I'll link to that full paper on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com because the whole paper is super interesting and it also gets into uh, Matsunginka notions of the soul as well. Okay. Well, for our last ghost story, we're going to end where we reside here ah. in North America. As you would imagine, the North American ghost story tradition is heavily tied into the European tradition, right? So mm-hmm. North American ghost story writers like Henry James in 1898 or Poe or Washington Irving, they came out of that same tradition. And then in the early 1900s, we had pulp magazines that just helped spread ghost stories further. By 1959, we got our own version of the psychological ghost story with Shirley Jackson's classic, The Haunting of Hill House. But today... I want to bring you right smack to here in 2017. Uh, this is interesting because it's both podcast related and it's a little bit of a meta take on the ghost story. And it's probably what most Stuff to Blow Your Mind listeners would expect from us in terms of our taking a look at ghost stories in sort of a scientific approach. Well, yeah, we tend to look at things like, all right, what's going on with hallucination? What's going on here with uh – uh, with the nature of human me- me- memory. Yeah. So Carrie Poppy is the podcast host of a show called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. And I-, I had not heard of it until uh, discovering this story. But their podcast sounds like it would be something that our listeners uh, would like. Probably some of you listen to it already. They explore fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal in our world. Uh, now, Carrie Poppy, she gave a TED Talk at the beginning of 2017. She talks about how when she was 25 years old, uh, she felt like someone was watching her in her home. And this kept getting worse. And she felt a pressure in her chest. And it got so worse over time that she eventually felt physical pain from it. And over the course of a week, it got worse and worse. And she thought maybe something was haunting her. So... She eventually started hearing whooshing sounds, like auditory sounds of whooshing going like sort of through her. So she turns to this forum of skeptics online and she types into them. She says, hey, I'm experiencing this. What do you guys think is going on? One of them says, have you ever heard of carbon monoxide poisoning? And this is essentially when you have a gas leak, carbon monoxide leaks into your home. All the symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning were similar to what she was experiencing. So she calls her gas company. They come out and they find, sure enough, she's got a gas leak and it would have killed her pretty soon if she hadn't addressed it. So in her TED Talk, Carrie Poppy talks about how this incident led her to become an investigator, both in journalism and in the paranormal. So now she goes undercover and investigates stuff like exorcisms and fringe groups. And this is all part of that Ono Ross and Carrie podcast. And in this talk, she says, 10 times out of 10, every time I've investigated something paranormal, science wins and saves the day. Uh, and she 
basically breaks it down. She says, look, there's two types of truth. There's outer truth, which is basically scientific truth. It's objective. It has evidence. And she says there's also inner truth. And this is more art oriented and personal. Now, she thinks here in the United States and in North America, we tend to make a mistake and we we conflate the two things and we make other people defend their belief systems, their truths based on other standards, right? So for instance, like maybe we make a scientist defend their ideas based on our personal beliefs or vice versa. Maybe uh, we interrogate somebody's personal beliefs, whether it be about religion or ghosts, and we interrogate them on some kind of scientific standing. Uh, so Carrie without pa- realizing that these, these are two worlds that don't really necessarily touch. Exactly. Yeah. And so, she says when we have scientific explanations, we know literally when to give up the ghost mm-hmm. that like in her case, for instance, she found out what the scientific explanation was for carbon monoxide poisoning and that she was like, OK, there's no longer any issue of me thinking there's a ghost here. And anybody else I tell this story to is probably not going to say to me, yeah, but there might still be a ghost there. You know, like it, <laughs> it, it's been well explained we're going to, quote, give up the ghost and move on to the, the rational scientific side. And she discusses groups that test the paranormal and prove that the, the paranormal is, in fact, other things with evidence, right? These skeptic groups. She sees this as actually being motivated to help people's lives for the better. So we've talked about many instances of, of things like this on the show before, whether it's exorcisms or alien abductions, things like that. If you look at it and you're able to ground it in some kind of scientific evidence, then maybe you can help the victims of things like this come to terms with it, right? Exactly, yeah. You have to be uh, accepting, though, on a certain level, right? You can't just approach them completely, uh, I don't know, dismissively. So Carrie Poppy, she says, look, every time I investigate one of these things, I hope I'll be proven wrong. I hope that there's ghosts out there. Uh, but then she asks, look – when you are investigating these things or talking to other people who have claims like this, respect these people enough to test their claims rather than just immediately blowing them off. She says that through her search for what's out there, trying to investigate the paranormal, that helps us understand what's inside us. So I thought that was a really poignant way to kind of wrap up all of these ghost stories that we've been looking at here that inherently – whether the ghost is real, whether you're reading a story that was written by M.R. James, you're experiencing something in your culture in China or South America, or you're here in America and you're on this meta level where you're like, oh, ghosts can't possibly be real. We have to figure out what's going on here. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, it's about the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, what, what is this? What is what do what are we trying to uh to communicate, or how is the ghost story serving as sort of a pressure valve uh, for uh, some sort of cultural angst? Yeah, exactly. So just to fill out Poppy's story, I want to throw out a few ideas as to what might be going on scientifically when we're looking at ghost sightings here. So uh, first of all, from Scientific American, hallucinations are very common when human beings are grieving. In fact, there's a study that shows over 80% of elderly people said that they experience hallucinations associated with their dead 
partner at least one month after bereavement. So that seems very common and not like something that I've heard about on a regular basis. Yeah, we've covered hallucinations on the show here before and uh, hallucinations occur. I mean, our our experience of reality is in many ways an, an hallucination in and of itself. Yeah. So then I also looked at an article by Mental Floss and they said that Canadian neuroscientist Michael Persinger has actually argued that electromagnetic fields may be stimulating our temporal lobes and that this can potentially cause us to feel like there's a presence in a room. So if there's something that's generating this particular kind of electromagnetic field, that may explain what the phenomena is. Other hypotheses are things like infrasound. Those are sounds that are so low that we can't hear them. So these sounds cause us physiological discomfort, panic, changes in our heart rate, and our blood pressure. All of these things are associated with hauntings. There's an engineer named Vic Tandy who wrote about this in a 1998 paper about a room that he worked in that felt haunted. And he eventually discovered that it was actually home to a 19 hertz standing wave that was coming from a fan in the room and that that was what was causing him to experience these symptoms. If you look at Poppy's story then, in 1921, a doctor named W.H. Wilmer published a paper in the American Journal of Ophthalmology about a family who was experiencing a haunting and it turned out that they had a faulty furnace and that it was filling their home with carbon monoxide, which was causing them both aural and visual hallucinations. So, all of this is to say, like, we, I think now, like, you get to North America and maybe globally as, like, we become more globalized, we're at this point, point where our ghost stories are starting to be analyzed from this perspective. Like, what, uh, what are we actually experiencing? But then what does the experience tell us about ourselves? Like, yeah. placing the ghost narrative on top of it. What, what, what's going on inside? Uh, and I would just, <laughs> if Carrie Poppy is listening, I would say, Sounds like she's going to be the perfect victim in a story for a classic <laughs> M.R. James style ghost story because she's the learned gentlewoman who who's rational. Right. And then mm-hmm. eventually she's going to stumble across some antique object. It's going to unleash ghosts like crazy and she's not going to have an explanation for it. And then the murderous dwarf is going to come for her and it's over. Exactly. So there you go. We covered six continents there. We uh, certainly were not able to get to every fabulous ghost story in the world, but we hit a few high points that we, that I feel like uh, helped to illuminate uh, what's going on in our ghost stories, what they're saying about uh, the human experience, and even uh, and even getting into some of the science of what could actually be going on to cause some of these disturbances. Yeah, so if you are from any of these regions that we covered and you're like, guys, you totally missed this cool ghost story fact about my, my area, please connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, we're on Instagram. We've also got our Facebook discussion module where the community around Stuff to Blow Your Mind is having awesome conversations every day based on our episodes or just based on things they think that will be interesting to fans of the show. Yeah, a great place to share your own ghost stories or if you want to if you want to talk about bicameral mind and how that play you think that could play into various ghost stories, that's a great place for those discussions as well. In the meantime, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes going all the way back to the very beginning. You'll find uh, blogs and videos as well, and you'll find links to those various social media accounts. And if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, just hit us with an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.